All right, let's go ahead and open up your Bibles this evening, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be finishing up this chapter tonight. It's a, a great, great study, uh, but boy, read ahead, you know, because uh, chapter 2 and 3 are, are power-packed, I, I just, and that's an understatement. There's a lot of really heavy stuff there, so I'm looking forward to that. But, you know, starting here, we're going to pick it up in verse 19 where I left off. And Paul says, for it pleased the Father that in him, of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ, that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, in the very next chapter, like I said there in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul is going to tell us that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, that's hard <laughs> to wrap your fingers around when you think about it. It's a, it's a hard concept. Uh, but Paul said that it pleased the Father that in Christ should all the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily. What's he mean by that? Well, it, in its basic understanding, is it, all that can be known of God, think of it this way, all the attributes of God, all that can be expressed by God, is perfectly expressed in the person and life and ministry of Jesus Christ. A hard concept to perceive, but true nonetheless. How often I've heard people tell me, you know, if I could just ask God a question, if I could just hear from God, you know, somehow that, that would make me believe. And I'm going, well, God has spoken to you, my friend. Uh, we call it the Bible, and he certainly spoke to us, as Paul said, in these latter times by his son. You know, prior to the cross, or prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, you know, he spoke to us from the prophets and from those who he had chosen to uh, infill with his spirit to speak the truth of God to the people. But in these latter times, these last days, if you will, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. So you want to know what God thinks? Look at what Jesus had to say. You know, if you want to know how God operates, look at how Jesus lived. He's the perfect expression. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead body. And that's why I look, love Jesus. I love the centrality of Jesus in the gospel. And so often, you know, when you listen to people uh, preach the gospel, I challenge you, take note. Take note how often you hear the name Jesus. Because you hear a lot about God. And, you know, there was a time in our society, and I know this is kind of a side note, but I just, I think it's worth noting. There was a time in our society when, when you said God, people knew you were talking about Jehovah. People knew you were talking about Yahweh. You know, they knew who you were speaking of, the God of the Bible. Well, those days are long gone, my friend. When people talk about God anymore, God has become an ambiguous term. And you never know who they're talking about or even what they're talking about. But when you use the word Jesus, <laughs> oh, they know. And isn't it funny how irritating that word can be <laughs> to so many people? It's amazing. To us, we hear the name Jesus, those of us who are servants of his, and we rejoice at the name of Jesus. We gladly bow the knee to him, and we worship him in truth and in spirit. But boy, the world hates the name Jesus. Remember, Jesus said in the gospel, if the world hates me, they will hate you also. Not because it's you, but because of Christ that is in you. Never forget that. 
Look at verse 20. He says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross. Man, if you're taking notes, students, underline that. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Make special note of verse 21. You need to remember this. So, through Jesus Christ, peace has been declared with God. Mankind was at war with God, and I would say even still is, obviously. Because every... Well, just because of the nature that he has is in rebellion against God from the moment that he's born. Man is in rebellion against God. The Bible tells us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, that's not, you know, just certain people. That's everybody. Men, look at the way men think. I had somebody the other day, I saw somebody posted a meme on Facebook, and they said, how come common sense isn't common anymore? <laughs> Going well, I'm not sure that it was ever common. There is the difference is there is godly sense, and I think there is worldly sense. Sometimes worldly sense and godly sense seem to be common, uh, but for the most part, they are not. Uh, there is a way, a, a biblical worldview, if you will, that us as Christians ought to have. Now, not a whole lot of the, the professing church unfortunately doesn't seem to to have that but they should but there's a way that seems right to the unregenerated man but the ways there are the bible says are the ways of death so man in his unregenerated state that is before he knows god because of his wretched nature that he was born with the the, the total depravity of mankind it he always chooses the path of destruction all you got to do is look around. I don't understand why people think they, they marvel at the stuff that's going on in Portland and in so many parts of the world and even in Israel and England. And it's all over. It's not just here. They, people are marveling at it. Oh, you know, people are rioting in the street. I'm going, yeah, you need to read your history because is it worse today? Oh, it's just more prevalent. Why? Because there's 7 billion people on this earth now. Uh, but even when there wasn't, uh, mankind has always been a man of destruction. Anything he chooses, he ruins. That's all there is. As a matter of fact, Jesus, speaking of the very end times that I believe we're you know, presently living in, he said that except those days be shortened, there would no flesh be saved. So, but because of the elect's sake, he said, those days shall be shortened. Never forget that, saints. You know, the fact is, is the days are going to be shortened. There is an appointed time. Only the Father knows what it is. But he has given us prophecy that we can look to that gives us the time in which we live. Now, how do you know that, Doug? Well, listen, go back to the Gospels and, and read what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees. He looked at them one day and he says, you know, you look at the sky. And it's red and lowing, and you say, oh, you know, it's a, you know, it's a storm coming. He said, you can discern the sky, the weather, but you cannot discern the time in which you live. Now, why did he say that? He said that because the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, over 400 of them in the, New Te- in the Old Testament alone about the first coming of Christ, are 
proliferated out throughout the Old Testament, and it's very readily seen. And they knew those prophecies. They knew them. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew that the anointed one was on his way. But they didn't believe it would happen in their time. And so here is the very fulfillment of that prophecy standing in front of them. And yet, they didn't believe it. They rejected him. Well, I believe that that same mindset is going to be prevalent at the time of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said that when the Son of Man shall return to the earth, will he find any faith upon it? So man, in his unregenerated state, he has no capacity to seek the things of God or to understand the things of God. It clearly tells us this in Scripture. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But he that is born again, he that is spiritual, uh, well, he judges all things, and yet he himself is judged by no man. So thus, not only is a man born into the world, he is of the world from his birth. And we're told in the scriptures to be friends of the world is to be an enemy of God. So mankind is at enmity with God from the very beginning, and he's that way even to this day. He rebels against God. He rebels against the things of God. I've seen a, a group who were, quote-unquote, protesting, and they were wearing signs that said, uh, we're, we're going to enjoy hell. You know, now they're mocking, of course. They don't mean that because they don't believe that there's a hell. They don't believe that there's a God that they, with whom they're going to have to do. But one of these days... Do you, you do realize that when people die, everybody's a believer after death? Because the truth of the, is, is that God exists. All you can do is look around, and you, only a fool has said there's no God. But unfortunately, this is the rebellion that's born into them. They are at enmity with God. But Jesus Christ, through his perfect life that he lived, and the blood of his cross, Paul says, has provided a righteous basis for God to forgive us of our sins and to give us a peaceful reconciliation with the Father. Thus Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, 17, uh, verse 19, he says, To wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing. I had a discussion with a young man today who I like a lot, and we got on this issue of imputation, and I said, listen, do yourself a favor, and I would tell those of you who are students, listen, do a word search. Just look up the word imputed, you know, and to impute. And, and, and make sure you have a good understanding of that because God uses it over and over again. So he says that not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. So it's just as if the Lord God himself was speaking to you right now through this ministry. We beg you, we are pleading with you, just as Christ has told us to do, telling you, be ye reconciled to God if you're not, my friend. In other words, cease your act of war against God. Christ has made the way by his life and his cross. So Jesus has reconciled all things unto God. 
we're told, whether they be things in heaven and, uh, you know, or, on, or on earth. You, at one time, he says, were alienated from God. You were enemies of God. In your mind, he says, and make note of that, which was evident by the wicked works that you did, and some of you are still doing. This is where the word repent comes in to the study. Because the enmity that we have with God um, in our unregenerated state is because of our fallen nature uh, that is at war with God. The war that we wage against God is waged in the mind, my friend. Uh, the way that we think and the way that we think always dictates the, what we do. It always does. Uh, I was talking with this same young man today. We were talking about the, like if you were standing next to a stove. What is it that keeps you from putting your hand on something hot? Well, your mind tells you that if I stick my hand in this flame, I'm going to get burned. I'm going to be injured. So your common sense, if there is such a thing, tells you this is not a wise thing to do. You know, so it dictates what we do. That's the point. Your mind does. And this is where the war against God is really happening. So the scriptures declare that we are to repent and to believe the gospel. The word repent in its basic form means to change your mind. That's what it means. Thus we read in Romans 12 too, he says, and be not conformed to this world. Don't be like it, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, before you knew Christ, before you knew Jesus, you were an enemy of God, my friend. If you never knew that, you need to realize it. I heard Paul Washer said that people do not understand the glory of God, really, because they do not understand how unholy and how unglorious they really are. And I agree with them. You know, the church is being taught, the world's being taught that Oh, well, you're just a lovely person. Come as you are, stay as you are. That's not the gospel. It has nothing to do with that, man. You know, there is, you know, before we understand what the good news is, we have to understand what the bad news is. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed. You know, like I said, before you knew Christ, before you knew Jesus, your mind was corrupted against God. You were an enemy of God. But once God opened the understanding of your heart, once your mind was transformed, renewed in Jesus Christ, then all that Jesus had done for you stepped into effect. It began to have its effect and to perfect you in Christ. Thus you were born again, a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. So it's that born-again experience, that being transformed in your mind, the way that you think, because now the way that you think in this new life that you have in Christ dictates the type of life that you will live. So, you know, it's a continuous, you know, Jesus is continually intercessing for you to the Father. Thus, you were, he says, were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. This is what God calls the works of mankind. 
that does, you know, the, the unregenerated man. Now, when we hear the word wicked, now I want to clarify this for you because I know some of you might have a misunderstanding about what wicked works is. You know, we watch the news and you see people rampaging through, uh, you know, Portland or wherever the, the rioting is happening and they're burning buildings and they're killing people. And, and, and we see that kind of heinous act or you see ISIS beheading our brothers and sisters in Christ at one time. Uh, we look at those and we say, well, those are wicked works. Yes, they are. Absolutely. But the Bible tells us in Romans that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Sin is wicked, my friends. It just is in the sight of God. So let me give you a, a passage. You know, Matthew chapter 7. I know you hear me quote it a lot, and I quote it a lot because it needs to be quoted a lot. Jesus said, many will come to me on the day of judgment, saying, Lord, Lord. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils in your name and do many wonderful works? Let me ask you a question, my friends. Is prophesying in the name of Jesus a bad thing? Doesn't seem like it. Is casting out a devil a bad thing? Doesn't sound like it. Many wonderful works doesn't sound wicked. Yet what did Jesus say after that? He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So even this good things that they were doing for God, God counted them as wickedness and evil and sin. Why? Because he didn't know them. Whatsoever, Paul said in Romans, is not of faith, is sin. Because it is God that must be in you doing the works, you see. God will not accept the works of man's hands. He never has and he never will. Even in the Old Testament, when they would build altars unto God, they were not allowed to use chisels. They were not allowed to use hammers. They had to use what God made, the stones that they picked up, and then they were to simply place those one upon another and then offer their sacrifices. God will not allow us as mankind to have any part in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. He won't do it, my friends. He will not share his glory with mankind. But I see that as a blessing. Praise God that it's done for me. Now I can rest. I don't have to worry about things, you know, because what Jesus has done is all sufficient in order to fulfill all that God has called us to. Look at verse 22. He says, in the body of his flesh through death to present you, if you're taking notes, man, make note of this, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Oh, man, I, this is the stuff I love. I love to be reminded of this by the Lord. The Bible tells us clearly that God has given to every man, those whom he has called, the measure of faith that he might believe. There in Romans 12, 3. Thus, he goes on, of course, and tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So even the faith that we have, you see, is given to us by God in order to draw those to himself that he is called. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So through the measure of faith that God has given to you to believe in Jesus, 
You have been forgiven, the Bible says, of all your sins and transgressions. And the last time I remember, the word all means all. In order, why? To present you unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. Now, I love the word unblameable because, boy, mankind can throw around a lot of blame. And I have to admit, I've done a lot of things in my life that I deserve the blame for. But God isn't. If you're in Christ, he has presented you unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. Now, you need to take note that this presentation that he says that Christ has done has already happened. Though, I mean, I freely admit that there is going to be a time, a very tangible uh, presentation that Christ is going to make to the Father in heaven once we're there. It actually is going to happen in a way, but it has actually happened already. Thus, the scriptures tell us that we were saved from the foundation of the world. So many people say, oh, I love the time when I came to Jesus. You know, when did you come to the Lord, you know? Oh, you know, it was June 22nd, 1962, whatever that thing is. And, and those are great to remember. You need to remember your second birthday. But the fact is, is that you really have been saved from the foundation of the world. So when Christ presented you, when he does present you, in a very real sense, that has already taken place. You need to remember 1 John four seventeen. Herein, he says, is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. I don't know about you, but I want to have boldness on the day of judgment. He says, because as he is, talking about Jesus, so are we in this world. You see, it's a present tense, my friends. It's already happened. You are as holy as you're going to get. You are as unblameable, unreprovable as you can be in his sight. Not in man's sight. Of course, man is always going to find fault, but in Christ, as he is. So are we in this world. How is Christ? Ask yourself that. Is he holy? Absolutely holy. Is he gracious? Absolutely gracious. Is he sanctified? Absolutely. I mean, all the attributes that you can imagine, the Bible says as he is, if he's in you. This is going to be what Paul talks about here in a minute, about the mystery. If he's in you, then you are as he is. Matter of fact, the Bible says, talking about his second coming, that we, when he comes, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. Wow, what a concept. Now, this is not to say that we should not strive to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have. This is not to say that we should sit back on our laurels because Christ has accomplished all on my behalf. Quite the contrary, my friends. Because Christ has accomplished all on my behalf, the gratitude that comes from my heart for what Christ has done for me, man, makes me, and of course the Holy Ghost dwelling in each and every believer drives me, it compels me, you know, to do what it is that Christ has called me to do. I want to live a life that is exemplary of the faith that I say that I possess in Jesus Christ. What we're actually discussing here, what we're dealing with, is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Once again, there's that word. Just so you understand, let me give you a textbook definition of the word imputed for those of you who maybe don't know. 
which is used over and over, as I told you previously, in the Word of God to describe, you know, the issues of righteousness and uh, sanctification and even sin. Literally, the word imputed means this, to ascribe or to charge a person with an act or quality because of the conduct of another. Wow. So Jesus is the one who has done the work, you see. The keeping of the law perfectly, doing always, he said, those things which please the Father. So all of his righteousness that he has done, he has imputed to you by faith alone if you were born again. But in reality, when you think about it, there was actually a double imputation that took place on the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, the, the, the cross where his blood was shed that has bought us with a price. All of my sin, all of your sin uh, was imputed to Jesus Christ at that moment. Who knew no sin, the Bible says, that he might become sin for us, from which his perfect sacrifice would cleanse us who believe and in turn, his righteousness was imputed to me and to you, making us perfect in God's sight by faith alone. Man, I can't drive that home enough, my friends. The cross of Jesus Christ, all that he has accomplished in his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, and the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father is more than sufficient to do what it is that he's called us to do. Now, Verse 23, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, Paul gives an interesting statement here one that many people have used over the years to strike fear into the hearts of weaker brethren and to put doubt into the minds of some over the doctrine of the perseverance of saints. Now, if my salvation had anything to do with me, then I would read verse 23 with fear because my continuance in the gospel would be based upon me. And because I have been unfaithful in the past, the fear of being unfaithful in the future would always be there. And how could you find any security in that? I wouldn't be able to. Thus, I would never be able to enjoy my security in Christ Jesus. So before you take this verse the wrong way, let me remind you of what Jesus himself said about what he has done for you and how that affects you. In John 6, 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me, as I said before, except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're also told in the book of Jude, there in chapter 1, verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So, Paul said that in Christ you are holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in faith, grounded, settled, and be not moved away from the gospel, the good news. So it is a true statement because it's not me who is 
hanging on to Christ, but it is Christ who is hanging on to me. It's given me, or given that we, it's a given that we persevere is what I'm trying to get across. Just to drive the point home, there's an interesting passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So the perseverance of the saints is what will happen, my friends, if you genuinely are born again and grounded in the faith of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for the, his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you. To fill the word of to fulfill the word of God. So the apostle Peter, in writing about the epistles of Paul, said this As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, or it means twist and distort, as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Peter said that in some things, Paul wrote, you know, they were just hard to understand, hard to, you know, to conceptualize. Paul was a very intelligent man, and when he wrote, sometimes it was a little tough to get your fingers around. Verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1 here would be one of those verses that Peter was talking about. In this particular verse, it would seem that Paul is saying that in some strange way, he is completing the afflictions of Christ in his own body for the, for the body's sake, which is the church. Now, I really believe the only way that you can get a decent glimpse and understanding about what Paul means here is to understand the relationship of Jesus to his church and his relationship to you. You see, whatever reproach we bear for the cause of Christ... It is, in reality, a reproach that is directed at Jesus. Whatever things we suffer for Jesus Christ's sake, those things and those sufferings are being directed squarely at Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if the world hates me, they will hate you. So it's not you they're coming after. They're actually coming after Christ, but you happen to be the middleman. This is something that the Apostle Paul understood all too well. All the beatings that he suffered, the stonings, the sufferings to which he was subjected, and the imprisonments that he went through were not really directed at him personally, though the world probably looked at it that way. It wasn't really because of anything he personally had done, even though the world looked at it that way. But it was because of man's animosity towards Jesus Christ. It was the spirit that was in Paul that was driving the animosity, you see. Thus, it was really Christ that they were persecuting. Though it was Paul physically, it was his person that was receiving the beatings, the stonings, the trials, tribulations, imprisonments. Yes, 
It was. In reality, Jesus was the one who was the object of those persecutions. They were being directed at Paul himself, but actually they were being directed at Jesus through Paul as the recipient. The actual object of their animosity, though, was Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, Peter said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of the glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So Paul, filling up the sufferings of Christ, said that he was made a minister according to God's plan in order to fulfill the word of God. Verse 26. Even the mystery which hath been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul said he was made a minister of the gospel, the good news, which has been in the past a mystery which was hidden for ages from generations, but is now revealed to the saints that God would make known what his, the, or what is the riches of his glory. This is the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery is that Christ will come and dwell in you if you are born again. The word gospel, we must never forget, as you hear me say all the time, means good news. It's hard to know the good news if you don't understand the bad news. The bad news for mankind is that your great-grandfather Adam, who was created perfect and sinless, corrupted that perfect standing with God when he and his wife decided that they would rebel against the basic commandment of God. God told them that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Spiritually, that death happened instantaneously. Even physically, it would eventually happen because of the grace of God. But this spiritual death, this death of the spirit of man, is something that, because of Adam, was passed down to all of his progeny, which is you and me. Thus, all of mankind became the part of God's creation that perpetually, because of its very nature, is given to sin. But that's no excuse for our sinning. Thus, God holds us responsible for the sin that we commit. The Bible says that the wrath of God will come upon all those who are the children of disobedience. In fact, Paul made it clear in Ephesians 2.3 when he said, Among whom we also had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Remember, it starts in the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
So the bad news is the wrath of God will come upon all those who are descendants of Adam because of his sin. But the good news is that God has made a way for man to be reconciled to himself, to have peace, to be counted righteous, holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. And that is by the indwelling of Jesus Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. Verse 28, he says, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. So, this is why we preach, my friends. That we as ministers may present every man perfect in Christ. So often within the body of Christ, within the church at large, so many ministers strive to bring people to Christ. You know, they, they see their ministry mainly as evangelism, and, and it, which is okay. There's nothing where we need to, to evangelize and to bring people to Christ, but they never bring them to full maturity in Christ because they're preaching about nothing but, you know, salvation. Thus, some churches are given to nothing but evangelism, and the Christians that stay in those churches become weak spiritually because they're, they're never encouraged to mature to become perfect in Christ. The example that we see in the Apostle Paul is that he would go into the synagogues. He would preach the gospel to whoever would listen. Some would believe, it says, and some would not. Those who believed, he taught. And his sole purpose in teaching was to bring them into the full maturity of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. Whereunto I also labor striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now take note, those of you who are students, that Paul said he labored, but he was striving according to his working, which works in him mightily. So often we want to emphasize the works of man in the body of Christ. We, we often more concerned with the works of man than we are with anything else. Thus we strive and we strive to do things for God. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul said, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Once again, most of the time, people only quote verse 12, emphasizing the works of man. Work out your own salvation. You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you see. Some even see this as a synergistic uh, inclination that, that the gospel somehow is being worked out, you know, with my part and God's part. I don't see it that way. I see it as monogistic. The fact is that it's all God. You know, he says, for it is God that worketh in you. Oh, it's just like Paul receiving the beatings and the torment, but in reality, it was Christ that was being the one persecuted, you see. When Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God that worketh in you, uh, he's telling you who's actually doing the work. It's God that's actually doing the work. It's not synergistic at all. It's monogistic. It's all him. If you're going to be effective uh, in evangelism, if you're going to be effective in doing anything in the ministry, 
It must be done by the power of the Holy Spirit in dwelling in you. The mystery of God, which is Christ in you. He is the one who does the works. We are but instruments by which he does them. Let us never forget that. Well, friends, you go ahead and read on. Chapter 2, very, very powerful. It gets better and better. And so until we meet again, I will see you. God be with you. The Lord bless you and keep his face on you. Win somebody to Christ, my friends. Preach the gospel. I'll see you next time. Bye.